1: I'm Dana Stevens, and this is the Slate Culture Gab Fest Licorice Dystopia Edition. It's Wednesday, March 16th, and on this week's show, we'll discuss Severance, the new Apple TV series that's about a corporate dystopia where work and home life are split into two separate parts of the employee's consciousness. Ben Stiller directs Adam Scott, Patricia Arquette, and many, many others star... Secondly, we'll talk about Paul Thomas Anderson's 10th feature film, Licorice Pizza, which is nominated for an Oscar in three different categories this year. Best Picture, Best Director, and Best Original Screenplay. This is a movie that has earned both rapturous reviews and considerable pushback from some quarters we'll discuss And finally, in an era famed for its fractured attention spans, why is it that the long-form YouTube video, and we're talking very long-form, like five-hour discussions of old TV shows, is enjoying an unexpected golden age? We'll discuss a Vox piece that makes this argument. I am joined, as always, by Julia Turner, Deputy Managing Editor of the Los Angeles Times. Hello, Julia. Hello, hello. And because Steve is off gallivanting about to Parts Unknown, which he will report back on in a couple of weeks, we are joined by Allegra Frank, Slate Senior Editor. Hey, Allegra. Hi. Sadly not
2: gallivanting, but that's why I haven't been on the show in a while. I was gallivanting prior to this
1: episode. I'm glad you got to gallivant, and I'm glad you get to (laughs) meet Julia. We've never done a show. We've done so many Allegra shows without you, Julia. Never one with you.
0: I'm pro gallivanting, but I'm also so excited to finally get to do a show with Allegra. Thank you so much for holding down the fort while I was off having a baby. I'm I'm grateful.
2: Yeah, I'm I'm excited to have you back and finally chat
0: with you. All right, a lot of hype, a lot of hype for this combo.
1: So Severance on Apple TV is a nine-episode first season. It comes from the mind of creator Dan Erickson in collaboration with Ben Stiller, who directed six of the nine episodes. And it's a stacked, stacked cast from Adam Scott and Patricia Arquette to John Turturro, Christopher Walken. Everywhere you look, there's another really good actor. This show falls somewhere in between... I don't know, a Twilight Zone episode and Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. It's a kind of psychological sci-fi setup where in an unnamed place and time, it doesn't seem to be far in the future, it seems to be in our own time. There is a company called Lumen, which produces we know not what, nor do its employees know exactly what Lumen is doing. But it's a company that operates on a very, very dubious ethical principle, which is that a particular floor of this building allows its employees to choose a process called severance, whereby... If I get this right, a chip is implanted in their brain that switches off their consciousness completely in between work and home. In other words, their work life and their home life are experienced by two separate parts of themselves, neither of which can remember the other." So as we join this strange corporate culture in the first episode, a brand new employee played by Britt Lauer is about to be inducted into the strange world of the severed floor of the Lumen Corporation. In this clip that we're about to hear, which is from the first episode of the show, you'll hear Mark, played by Adam Scott, who is a veteran employee of the company, introducing this new employee, Heli R., to the strange rules of corporate culture at Lumen. Hey. Hey. So it's tomorrow now? Uh, yeah.
2: Well, it's Monday. A weekend just happened? Yeah. I don't even feel like I left. Yeah, that's how nights and weekends feel here. Like nothing?
1: Well, you get used to it. I mean, I find it helps to focus on the effects of sleep, since we don't actually get to experience it. You may feel rejuvenated or happy. Less tense in the shoulders. Spry.
2: So it's 9.05.
1: Yeah, they stagger the entries, too, so we don't meet on the outside. It's important, apparently. So I guess we're not friends. Guess not. All right, I'm going to start for analysis of this show with you, Allegra, for the reason that you showed me this weekend, that you have for your phone wallpaper, nothing but a montage of pictures of Adam Scott. (laughs) You are a huge, (laughs) longstanding Adam Scott fan. Uh, And so I presume that you have strong feelings about this show, in which he, I have to say, does extraordinary work and appears in nearly every scene in a very demanding dual role, where he plays essentially, right, these two split sides of his own brain. Mm -hmm. So uh, Adam Scott included, but the whole show, what do you think of Severance? Yeah, I mean, definitely
2: Adam Scott is a big draw for me. wherever wherever he goes, I follow. Um, so it's nice to see him in a more dramatic role than we've seen him in quite some time. I, I, I'm struggling to think of the last non comedic thing he's done. And certainly, Severance is. I won't say bereft of comedy. It's not completely joyless, but it's a, a much darker, <laughs> much darker show than I even maybe anticipated. Um, So I've watched every episode that's currently aired. So five episodes. I think there's nine episodes total in the season. But I am not really enjoying it. (laughs) I am not really enjoying the show at all. And I'm kind of disappointed because, you know, I I like the concept of there is this dystopian secret world in this company that exists outside of time in its own way. Like this, this company is steeped in mystery. Adam Scott doesn't even understand what's happening because you know, yeah, the whole, the whole premise is that no one who works there knows what's going on outside of work. They don't remember what happens to them, but the mystery of what is happening at this company is unfolding so slowly for me that it honestly feels kind of painful to be watching, because I feel like from episode one it is very clear that things are bad. <laughs> this is not a good place. By episode two, you know, I, I feel as though we should have moved the ball forward more quickly than we have in terms of the employees, whether that's Adam Scott or uh, his new colleague, Helly is her name. You know, actually having some made some headway toward getting out of this company, which is something that she is trying to do and has failed to do and barely <laughs> made any made any steps toward doing in any successful uh, you know level in episode five, which is more than halfway through. Um I just feel like I just feel like very
0: little has unfolded. I am with you, Allegra. And I feel extra disappointed because I feel like the concept of doing a show right now about alienation from work, it's like a great, great moment post two years of pandemic for a really smart, really interesting show, exploring Mm -hmm. our dependency on work, our alienation from work, what we get out of work, what we don't get out of work. Like the concept is so exciting and the cast is so exciting. And then... The show just felt a little bit like high on its own aesthetic supply. There's like a moment in one of the first couple episodes where John Turturro seems to be, you know, his innie, his, care, his character in the office seems to be suffering some kind of glitch or I don't know, maybe it's an effect of the um, procedure or something. Anyway, he like hallucinates some bubbling black ooze creeping over his computer and you just get this feeling that the creators were like, and it's going to look so cool when the ooze comes. And it's like, (laughs) I don't, it's sure, but, you know, it's it's a challenge for any creator of a dystopic narrative, right? Any Mm -hmm. portrayer of a dystopia in which humanity and humanism is squelched to like figure out how you stud enough glints of recognizable humanity in it for you to find people to root for and to actually proceed and be curious about all the dystopian mysteries that the thing will unfold. And Adam Scott is like a good bet for that, right? Like he's, um, you know, we know him as like the affable, slightly misfit, um, kind, warm, but with sometimes a little dark edge the way he his character had on Big Little Lies um, or Party Down. But, you know, he he's a good bet, but it's just a lot. I mean, the one thing i loved was his relationship with his sister in the outer world and there are moments between them where you feel like oh yes that's the human civilization that's even worth fighting this corporation for but like the rest of the outer world also seems super mannered and unappealing so like why even fight to get out dana
1: I love I love <laughs> you both explained. as colleagues. You're wrong. You're both wrong. <laughs> the show is brilliant. What? I wish that Steve was I wish Steve was on the show this week because I have the feeling that he would be with me on this one. All right. I've heard a lot of people critique the show as being slow moving and it definitely is a is a red herring filled show in the way that, you know, it's strewing a bunch of clues and forcing the viewer to try to figure out what Lumen does, what Lumen makes, you know, why these these people chose this this procedure that traps them inside the office ex- experientially. It it unfolds those things slowly, but it doesn't do. I never felt that annoying feeling like the show Lost always gave me from the very first episode. Some people took seasons and seasons to figure this out. And from the very beginning, I sort of thought Lost doesn't know where it's going or what it's doing. And it's just throwing weird things at us to make us experience, you know, uh, cognitive dissonance for no reason. Severance, on the contrary, seemed to me so meticulously thought through and it's world building. That's what I loved about the inside of The Office is that, you know, you you are being given glimpses very slowly slowly, just as the other employees are. And that leaves so much time for character development. So Allegra, to hear you say that you didn't feel like you knew who these characters were, at least when they're in the office, I agree that I would like a little bit more time outside. And as the season progresses, and I have seen all nine episodes, you do get more time outside with with each of the characters. But I got to know so well, you know, people like John Turturro's character, very different from the kind of person he usually plays. You know, not somebody who's a who's a big showman-like kind of outward character, but someone who's very repressed and inward, but you slowly, slowly get to know him. Or Zach Cherry's character, who at first comes off as, you know, somebody who is completely duped by the corporate language and the kind of cult-like business speak of The Office, but who reveals himself to be someone very different with more, more of an inner life than that. But Above all, I just thought this show was exquisitely well written. I mean, it's just it has such a unique. Um, vocabulary and use of language, and the way that that Lumen um, philosophy, which the Pat- Patricia Arquette character, who is this mysterious overseer of the these individuals on the severed floor, is is such a fantastic portrait, I think, of a true corporate believer, someone who is completely bought into this almost religious, cult like language about Lumen Industries. Um, she she plays it with such ferocity, and she's it's a really chilling performance. We also haven't really mentioned the look of the show, but I think. When scouting sites for this show, Ben Stiller and his team found this, this incredible laboratory. I think it's it's Bell Labs, or it was the old Bell Labs in, in New Jersey. It was designed by Eero Saarinen, right, who designed the tulip table, who designed uh, the JFK Airport Terminal, who has this very specific, you know, high modernist style. And that space is just used so effectively to create an extremely chilly, labyrinthine, strange world within the building. I just, all I know is that when I finished the ninth and final episode of this season, I was desperately scrambling to Google when is the next season of Severance coming out?
0: You liking it is making me very intrigued and making me feel like I should give it some more time. Like it does not seem up your alley at all, Dana. I'm I'm stunned by this conclusion from you. <laughs> I um, wonder
1: why you think it doesn't seem up my alley, because I don't you don't think of me as liking sci-fi, or you don't think of me as liking cliffhanger mysteries or what?
0: Because I think this seems like pretentious and hollow, and I think you usually see through that bullshit. <laughs> I don't know. Or I think you're such a like Humanist. I don't know. I think it's a TV show that's. It certainly sets up intriguing puzzles and there are good performances. I just found the affectlessness of it really deadening. I mean, did that not bother you at all? You were just like, give me more monotones and more long hallways? <laughs>
1: I mean, I think, again, this may have to do with having seen the whole season, because obviously a show that starts out being about repression, which is really what the the Severance setup is about, right? I mean, it's about what would it be like to block out your workday, which everybody has had that experience. And and the the writer Dan Erickson has talked about that, that he had a corporate job in the past where he used to just start work in the morning and think, I wish I could turn off my brain for the day. And that was sort of the, the, the germ that got this story started. And so naturally, the first Episodes that are setting up the world in which everyone is repressed and severed are going to be lacking in that kind of human warmth. But I feel like the whole movement of the show is about, you know, how the repressed returns and uh, and how people's passions will out in the end. And so, yeah, definitely by the later episodes in the season, there is all kinds of, you know, Furious violence and passion boiling beneath that surface. So no, I don't think of it as a bloodless show at all, but it is certainly a show that is a portrait of a bloodless world. So you have to commit to that world. And if if it really just chills you to the bone or bores you so much you don't want to continue, then I guess you can bail. I just
2: it's just like I find a show like this to be, there's so much deep, intricate world building that could be happening more than it is happening already. And, the fact that you know I have so many questions I think is not intentional like I am not questioning things because I'm intrigued I'm questioning things because I feel as though I should know them already of like a little bit more of what these people are actually doing every day a little bit more about how long they've been there so it's just the the amount of questions and the very slow speed of it is why I am just like Oh, geez. Another one of these shows where it's just going to be all mystery and I'm never going to know the answers.
1: It's funny, there's nobody who gets more annoyed than me at that kind of show. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And yet I find this one utterly compelling. So go figure. All right. Well, it's Severance, it's on Apple TV. I really hope that at least listeners that are slightly intrigued by my love for this show will will give it some sort of chance. Go go a few episodes in and see if you can make it through. And if and when you do watch, please write us at culturefest at slate.com and let us know what you thought. All right, moving on. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? All right. Now it's time for this week's business. And our only item of business this week is to tell you about today's Slate Plus segment. This week, that segment comes from a listener question, as it has been a lot lately. We've got a lot of good questions on the pile. This week's question comes from a listener named Emily, who writes in about something Julia said in relation to a recent segment on the movie Nightmare Alley. Emily writes, Hello, in a recent episode, Julia mentioned her lack of interest in fictional works based on carnivals. I would love to hear more about that and if the others also have aversions to films or novels set in certain places or along a certain theme. That is a good question. I too want to know about Julia's blockage when it comes to carnival-based entertainment. So if you want to hear more about that and other aversions that we may inexplicably have to certain subject matter or themes in movies and TV shows, listen to our Slate Plus segment this week. If you're a Slate Plus member, you'll hear that at the end of the show. And if you're not, of course, you can sign up at slate.com slash culture plus. If you're a Slate Plus member, you'll get ad-free podcasts, you'll get bonus content like the segment I just described, and many other shows on Slate have those as well, and you will also get unlimited access to all of the writing on Slate.com. You'll never hit a paywall if you're a Slate Plus member. Of course, when you support Slate Plus, you're also supporting us, our magazine, and all the brilliant writers who work for it. These memberships really matter for Slate, so please, if you can, sign up today at Slate.com slash Culture Plus. Once again, that's Slate.com slash Culture Plus. Paul Thomas Anderson's Licorice Pizza is set in the place and more or less the time, slightly before the time where he grew up. It's the early 70s in the San Fernando Valley. And a high school student named Gary Valentine, played by Cooper Hoffman, the son of longtime Anderson collaborator Philip Seymour Hoffman, meets and falls sort of platonically in love with, we'll get into what their relationship is, but meets and becomes fixated upon an older woman, a young woman in her mid-twenties named Alana Kane, played by the singer Alana Haim. And the two of them proceed to embark on a series of peripatetic adventures. We'll talk about what some of those adventures are, but this is really a movie that's not about plot. It's more about feeling, about mood, and about the unfolding of this specific relationship in this specific environment. Let's listen to a clip from near the beginning of Licorice Pizza. This is, I guess you could call it the first date of Gary and Alana. They are out having a drink at Tale of the Cock, which is an old Hollywood hangout that he likes to hang out in. He's a former child actor who's trying, with not much success, to transition into to being an older teenage actor. In this scene, you'll hear Alana and Gary discussing the future of his career.
0: So how'd you become such a hotshot actor?
1: I'm a showman.
2: It's my calling. <sighs> I don't know how to do anything else. It's what I'm meant to do. I mean, ever since I was a kid, I've been a song and dance Come man. Come
1: on. Ever since you were a kid? Song and dance man.
0: Where are your parents?
2: My mom works for me.
0: Oh, of course she does. Yes, yeah,
2: she does. That in my public sense. relations company.
0: In your public relations <laughs> company? Because you have that. Yes. And you're an actor. Yes. And you're a secret agent, too.
2: <laughs> well, no, I'm not a secret agent. <laughs> That's funny.
1: Are you joking?
2: Well, no, I'm not.
1: That's a lot. It's
2: gets complicated.
1: I'm sure. And all that math homework you have to do after everything. Julia, I'll start with you this time. I wonder whether the very meandering nature of this screenplay is something that irritated you, put you off, intrigued you. I feel like I almost can't defend my love for this movie. I just, it's it's more of a, a feeling than anything else. This is, as I said, a movie that's about vibes rather than about plot. It's a movie that requires a lot of patience from the viewer because you're watching these two young and very confused people meander through a period of their lives where they themselves don't know what they're doing or what comes next. Uh, and I wonder whether you had the patience to stick with them through that and felt the kind of affection for the world that Anderson evokes that I
0: did. I loved it. Unabashedly, I think I liked it more than any other Paul Thomas Anderson movie I've ever seen. I'm not someone who's a you know massive fan of Boogie Nights or Magnolia. They've always seemed a little chilly to me. And there's you know these people are not quite human. They're like supercharged. They're they've got a bit of old Hollywood patter in them in the way that in, as you can hear in the clip we just listened to. But their series of escapades is just so beautifully doled out and so pleasurable and rendered in these like bright, sunshiny 70s colors um, and doesn't have the kind of dreary palette you find in so much modern cinema. Um, I, I I was really smitten. And I think part of why I was smitten, you know, there's been a lot of commentary about the, you know, age gap and what it means to portray such an age gap. But I felt like the movie was about the Alana character's uncertainty and kind of being caught between being a kid and being a grown up and trying to figure out what that means, um, and and using her relationship with him to progress and avoid the future. And then, I, I, I felt I felt that without larding it on, the movie's a really sensitive portrait of a of a you know kind of real confusion. It's not glamorizing the relationship exactly. It's not suggesting I don't think it's trying to make like a anti cancel culture point about age gaps or anything. It's just like here's two people who connected as people sometimes do and feel ambivalent about it and have their own process around it. And I don't know. I enjoyed that part. The critique so the critique about the age gap I would lay aside. The critique about the scenes with the Japanese restaurant owners' wives, uh, those are you know, some minutes of the film that I think it could have stood cutting or serious rearranging. Um, and they seemed like they were supposed to be a comment on the racism of the time, but they seemed to, they seemed yucky. So I didn't like that.
2: Yeah. I mean, I completely agree with you, Julia, that the, the bigger issue I think is the, uh, john michael higgins character of the japanese the american restaurateur who has japanese restaurants um with a japanese wife or changing japanese wives i found that to be pretty uncomfortable and offensive and the way that you know they had him doing little accents to talk to his wife it was just it was super distracting for me um, but thankfully, you know, the it didn't detract from my enjoyment of the movie overall, and neither did the sort of May-December relationship at its heart. I think I, just like you, Julia, I saw it more as Alana Himes' movie um, as much as I liked Cooper Hoffman. So I was watching it from her perspective more than anything, and so I saw Gary as sort of a little gnat in her ear who was intriguing to her understandably he's definitely an intriguing and uh, very charismatic guy and I didn't really find their relationship anything but you know a natural magnetism to this particular soul who especially at a time in Alana's life where she is just kind of flitting around different things and doesn't really have any trajectory you know someone who does have ambitions is very attractive and I think her saying that she loved Gary is more uh you know her her love for Gary is more inspired by that relationship of I am meaningless and rudderless and you are the complete opposite. So I didn't totally mind it it you know I'm not always one for the, <laughs> the uh, May December plot line, but I, I thought it was, pretty inoffensive here and overall yeah like you know I loved Alana so much I loved Alana Heim's performance it probably helps I'm a big Heim fan and seeing her whole family in there too I just thought she was so natural which especially you know Gary being so postured and having such a particular way of um, comporting himself it was a really nice contrast and As her first freaking movie role, like I thought she just, you know, hit it out of the park. I could not stop watching her. And I loved every minute she was on screen.
1: Yeah. I mean, she's the idea of casting two unknowns. I mean, Alana Haim is known for something, obviously is known as a musician, but certainly not an actor. And Cooper Hoffman has never been in a movie before. That's something that, for for one thing, Paul Thomas Anderson's power and, you know, at this point, reputation as a filmmaker allows him to do, right? He can construct a big budget love story around two unknown actors, which is interesting in itself. And that also gives these two this kind of untutored quality. I mean, they're on screen alongside, we can get into some of these side characters, but, you know, Bradley Cooper, Sean Penn, there's big movie stars appearing alongside them. And the fact that they don't quite fit in, that they look like normal kids, for example— um, that, that gives it this quality of, of naturalism and almost freedom. You know, There's a kind of freedom to the sense of their relationship, that they feel the way that young people falling in love do, that they're outside of the world that they're in, and they're sort of running through it as if it's their backdrop. There's lots of running in this movie, a great deal of cinematic <laughs> running against beautiful sunsets and backdrops.
0: Nobody runs that much in Los Angeles. Just like pedestrians <laughs> at a high clip is like the the, the main mode. Of transport. Well, setting, setting it against
1: the the backdrop of the energy crisis of the seventies, right, so that there's there's a few scenes where the, the things that they're running through are basically stalled traffic, people waiting on gas lines, et cetera. It it just underscores what I was describing as you know this movie about the mobility of youth, you know, set against the sort of backdrop of this stationary established, built world. And uh, and that that was that's all done without, you know, putting those ideas forth as ideas. I, I loved how many ideas in this movie are gotten across visually or sonically, you know, rather than through dialogue. The dialogue is very meandering. At times it almost appears improvised, but I don't think it is at all. I think, you know, that it's all very scripted, very carefully in such a way as to sound natural. And that's kind of the, the paradox of this movie is that it, it, to me, also had this feeling of exuberance and freedom and, you know, this feeling of passion, but it's also a very built object, you know, that's been very carefully crafted in all its details. And I think Anderson balances those two things really well. Yeah, it,
2: I want to go back to the the length of it I, and not to harp on how long things feel or not. But this certainly to me, I was watching and was thinking, is this almost over? Or is there like another half hour left? And that's not to ding it, but I think that just speaks to just how breezy and how engaging these characters were because it is, it is as you said, more about a vibe and less about a plot. You know, there's so much happening to these characters in a slow fashion, but also not so slow that they're not able to bounce around to multiple things. You know, they're very actively changing their... Uh, their interests and their purpose um, th- throughout the film, you know, which also allows for all those sort of bit, almost cameo appearances from these famous actors. So it kind of reminded me of like a TV show in that way of like, it's mostly just experiences and adventures <laughs> over the course of almost two and a half hours, which I liked. Um, Yeah, it's roomy.
1: I mean, it it feels more roomy than long. It feels like a space that you can inhabit. And I know in my case that I wanted to keep inhabiting. You know, I think it was long enough and didn't need to be longer, but I also felt a kind of sadness when it ended and immediately wanted to watch it again. Uh, Let's talk about some of these episodic um, scenes with with other actors. There's a long passage of the movie where Sean Penn and Tom Waits become important characters only for that passage, then they kind of drop out of the narrative. There's also a, a much praised and much left at segment involving Bradley. Cooper playing John Peters, the famous Hollywood hairdresser that Warren Beatty and Shampoo is partly based on. And uh, and I wonder what you, you guys think of these these set pieces. I mean, if nothing else, they're a chance for some really good actors to sink their teeth into some good comedy and some, some big hammy roles. Um, but what did you think of the, the episodic unfolding, Julia? Did you have any favorites or least favorites there?
0: They're so nicely balanced. like They each have their own weight in interesting ways. Um, I mean, the Bradley Cooper one is just so fun. I understand why it's been the most noted and the most praised. Do you know who I am? Yeah. Do you know uh, who my girlfriend is? Barbra Streisand? Shai- Barbra Streisand. Sand. Sand, yeah, like sands, like the ocean. Like Barbra Streisand? No, like Streisand. Sand. Streisand. Streisand. Sand. That performance is wild, and then what the gang of kids plus alana has to do to extricate themselves from the bind they find themselves in is just like a great little bit of white knuckles lapstick drama it's very (laughs) slash comedy like you know totally engrossing but i liked how they all you know essentially they're just these questing young people and yes they're 15 and 25 but psychically i think they're closer in age and it's true that you can be an old 15 and a young 25 and um you know they find this kismet and then they keep rushing up against the f- different fears of the adult world they there's a you know butt slapper in the first scene where we meet alana there's the arbitrary nature of criminal justice when cooper's character gets pinched um by the cops uh, and and it's it's Treated as terrifying. Uh, there's the flamboyant Hollywood uh, prankster, and you know, Alana's like very nearly physically harmed by him. They near, you know, they there's like real danger, real adult danger in the world in all of these capers, and they have a very capery tone, but like actual harm and consequence are abounding in a way that I think you know, causes the Alana character to wonder whether she's avoiding her future and adult life by hanging out with these kids or, in fact, she's found it because she's found a person who's like a partner in crime who has her back in the face of all this danger. And it's just kind of this beautiful little through line and each one adds up to push her towards where she finally lands in terms of her relationship with this uh, charming kid who's full of full of his own energy and momentum. And I don't know, the whole thing just worked. Well, minus the Japanese restaurants, but so much of it worked so beautifully and sweetly to me and and just felt so so human. I mean, down to the fact that as the friend I watched it with noted, they have human skin, like when is the last time you saw actual human complexions on a screen of any kind, like just that they all are like, a little sweaty and have pores and have like, uh, it, you know, it's just it's just feels so fresh.
2: Yeah, I saw Alana Heim on I think it was probably Jimmy Fallon talking about how dentists have been reaching out to her on Instagram <laughs> after watching the movie um, or just seeing her doing press because of her teeth, which, you know, I love her teeth. She loves her teeth. But I think even just like an actress coming on and having and daring to have crooked teeth and no makeup is just something that is so rare, especially a, a new actress.
1: All right. Well, the movie is Licorice Pizza. It's still playing in theaters. If you're going to theaters now, I would recommend seeing it that way because it's a wonderfully enveloping experience. But if not, you can also find it out there on some streaming platforms, including Google Play and Amazon. And if you have thoughts about Licorice Pizza after you've seen it, I'm very curious where you fall. We all happen to love it, but I'm curious what our audience thinks. And as always, you can write us at culturefest at slate.com and let us know. A lot has been said about the video essay and its ever-shifting parameters. TikTok's sudden, unwavering rise has proven the viability of bite-sized content, yet the prevailing popularity of video essays from new and old creators alike suggests otherwise. So writes Terry Wynne in an article in Vox about the video essay boom. Her argument is that, Even though we are in an era of fracturing attention spans when nobody can look at a screen for more than 10 seconds at a time without clicking away to another screen, on YouTube, long-form videos are thriving. For some reason, especially Generation Zers, younger people are loving sitting down in front of incredibly long and sometimes absurdly detailed analysis of pop culture, discussion of contemporary phenomena from their favorite YouTubers in longer and longer form, sometimes longer than the cultural product itself that the video essayist is talking about. We wanted to start off by listening to a clip from one of these long form video essays. This is a very popular YouTuber named Mike's Mike, and here he is taking apart at great length and detail in an hour and 52 minute long video, the TV show Pretty Little Liars. Let's listen to a clip.
2: Okay, so this is how it's gonna work. We're gonna go through Pretty Little Liars seasons one to seven. Going to the plot and character details for each season, all 160 episodes from all seven seasons. And each season is assigned a color of string and the string color designates relationships and plot interactions between the characters. So in this video, we're going to cover season one, which is red, which is already put up on the wall. Season two, which will be in green and season three, which is in blue. Now we're doing all of season one. of season two and the first half of season three which in total is 60 episodes then for part two i'm planning on finishing (laughs) season three during (laughs) season four and season five and then the final part will be season six and season seven. That
0: <laughs> clip is so unfair. Like <laughs> These are not my format, but they are not all people explaining the insane lengths they're going to go to.
1: <laughs> I love that he's literally tying
0: string to a
1: to pin, push pins on, on a
0: board. That's like the shadiest clip that Cameron has ever selected for the show. Props to you, Cameron.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm just laughing that the two of you were talking about how slow severance was to get started. I mean, the entertainment value offered by any individual minute is on so much greater than that setup but maybe that is not fair to mike's mike who i understand is a very popular youtube creator so he must be doing something besides talking about how long he's
0: going to talk about something <laughs> i mean i think he knows that talking like that's funny that's a bit i think like the the, the elaborate uh, insanity of uh, <laughs> the depth of interest there <laughs>
1: I mean, what is going on here? Allegra, I'm going to turn to you because you are the youngest person on the panel today. Answer for yourself. Not that I'm actually even critiquing this phenomenon. I just legitimately don't understand it. I'm also not sure to what degree this is a real phenomenon or to what degree it's it's sort of like an invented trend. I mean, obviously, there's always going to be some tranche of people out there on the internet consuming all kinds of content. But is it really the case that there is this increasing viability of these very long form personal essay videos?
2: Oh, yeah, it's completely a phenomenon. And so it started really back in 2012 ish, which is sort of what's gotten at in the article is that YouTube prioritizes watch time over view counts. So even though it seems like, okay, if you have 20 million views on your 30 second video, like, Theoretically, that sounds way better than having a million views on your four-hour video. But a million views on your four-hour video means a lot (laughs) in terms of, you know, making money off of that video. Because watch time, it's far easier to monetize. They can add way more ad breaks. So a lot of YouTubers have now been increasingly inclined to release longer and longer videos. And the best way to do that is... In forms like this of like going through entire TV shows that are pretty popular and doing sort of absurd takes on them, either recapping them in funny ways or picking apart various themes with tons of sourcing, um, which is why they're known as video essays. And I have become just a really huge fan and know tons of other people who are as well of watching these YouTubers break down Things that a lot of, you know, critics don't take so seriously. And I've come to really appreciate that. Um, and, you know, one example I point to a lot is this one eight-hour recap of the show Victorious, <laughs> which is a Nickelodeon TV show that Ariana Grande was famously on. Not a show I liked, but yes, there is an eight-hour recap, and I will watch it because I want to know why someone has eight hours of things to say about Victorious and it has two million views and it's a sequel to a five and a half hour long recap of Victorious that has four million views like people have a lot to say about these things and that alone is fascinating to me
0: Yeah, that's so interesting. I mean, I had not – I just don't – I turned to YouTube for, like, research around specific things or to monitor my children's, you know, selection of Minecraft experts to look at. It's not my own place for rest and relaxation. But when I went and checked out some of these videos – I was like, "Oh, it's just podcasts. Like this is just podcasts, but on a different channel. It's like podcasts for people who are video people. <laughs> like, yeah, it's a lot of random creators enjoying their their ability to self publish on a platform where anybody can find them, um, to pursue their passions, to display their humor." To do that in a mode that allows them to have kind of quick cutaway jokes to elaborate visuals they've concocted, or like wry and cheeky use of memes slash like stock footage with the Getty watermark still on it, <laughs> um, and there's kind of like a there there's a commonness in the humor I found in some of them, which is that there is a general sense of wryness that that. They are setting themselves as experts, but they are um, obviously just randos on the internet. That makes them sort of appealing, <laughs> like like they're they wear their authority lightly and as a joke. I'm massively generalizing here, of course, about a huge genre that probably has all kinds of things within it. But having seen both. Having watched videos ranging from a, like, deep explication of iCarly and its uh, (laughs) prescience as a series, and then I also learned about the existence of BreadTube, a kind of socialist subset of this, and then I watched some Australian guy tell me how to become a BreadTuber, so his explanatory essay was about making explanatory essay videos, which was like way inside the Ouroboros. But what these two things had in common was a certain like ironical self-awareness of the ridiculosity of anyone setting themselves up as an expert at this moment in history. I don't know. I like I kind of get the appeal, even though it's not my bag. And it feels similar to the conventions of podcasting where, you know, at, at various levels of professionalism, people can sit down with the microphone and sort of be like you know adopt the like anchor voice and be like welcome to the blah 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 like today's show we'll talk about blah 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 like yes we do that this is a show (laughs) we've been doing it for 15 years but also you know you can just kind of adopt those conventions
2: i love that julia and i are on the same page (laughs) first time we meet and we're just in sync it's kismet (laughs) Wait, so I Dana, mean, did you end up watching any of these? I am very curious. Yeah,
1: I watched, I watched as far as I could get into them. And I guess I'm familiar with the phenomenon because I do see, I mean, I was the one just saying, is this really happening out there in the world? But I see my own teenage daughter watching things like this sometimes. I'll be surprised how often we'll watch, say, a, a movie, a classic movie together or something. And then I find her searching it up, you know, and there's some guy talking about all about Eve, you know, at his at his <laughs> desk with his with his webcam on Uh I mean, I I agree with Julie that the homemade part of it has, has an appeal and the idea that everybody can put on their own show. I guess I don't quite see why these have to be visual, and maybe that that comes into what you were saying, Julie, about them basically being podcasts where you can see people talking. Not many examples of the ones that we link to, anyway, have much visual interest. I mean, they're called video essays, but it isn't as if the person is usually expertly editing clips together in some interesting way or creating an interesting visual background. I mean, most of the time what I was seeing really was sort of a flatly lit person sitting at their IKEA desk with their webcam on, yammering on, and I I don't quite see why that's nailing people to their seats, but I suppose that your listening modality might be as if it were a podcast, right? You might have this on and be going about your business, not ne- necessarily glancing at the screen that often. Um, it's a form that seems like it has possibilities that are not being explored by a lot of the creators. But I mean, I guess if they're popular and getting views anyway, maybe they don't have to add a lot of visual appeal.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think a lot
1: of YouTube in general,
2: ironically, is not super visually appealing. Like a lot of vloggers make their money by just talking about their lives. And oftentimes, there isn't much in the way of, you know, a visual in in that. Um, and I think people are just interested in seeing young people who are smart and like the things that they like. And observing them and of course also the fact that you can have them on in the background and you're not totally missing much is very helpful that's absolutely how I watch these things because I am always looking at at least two other screens Um, I am part of the problem so yeah I mean I think having little visual content to actually be looking at is pretty crucial there are some video uh essayists who are pretty popular that do have more clips they use more clips um jenny nicholson is one who breaks down content usually that's like disney related fandom related um she did like a really great video on dear evan hansen that used a lot of clips
1: intellectually you know what ben platt looks like and that he is a normal looking man but in this film there is something twisted and unnatural about him like you're looking at a mission impossible style mask of his face and then they drop him you know
2: into scenes it next to, to the point that uh people. julia made of these being kind of like podcasts you can put on your tv like you can totally just listen to these things and not miss much which is what i really like i mean that's why i will sit and play a video game on mute while i'm watching five Jenny Nicholson videos in a row and realizing it's two in the morning.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think just like the transition towards multi-screen attention is one that that is really shaping what gets made and what gets consumed and what's popular. And like, that's probably always been true. There have been households that have the Today Show on in the background. Like I, you know, we don't listen to radio in the car and I just like wonder what information my children will not learn from not having just had like soothing NPR Voices, you know, telling you what the capitals of various places are in the background quietly your whole childhood. Like multitasking is not like invented in the 21st century, obviously. But, you know, my kids want like three screens at once. And I find myself doing it with audio. Like you couldn't pay me to think of YouTube as like what a pleasant place to like hang out at the end of a stressful day. Like the site (laughs) is so ugly. The like (laughs) videos look so unappealing. There's like, you know, Three and a half minutes of like garbage warm up at the beginning of everything. It just seems like a very inefficient conveyance of entertainment. But that's just taste, you know? And the fact that my job requires me to like sit looking at a screen all day. So when I'm done with it, I want to like have something in my ears, but not my eyes. And increasingly, I've become agnostic about whether the thing that's in my ears has attendant visuals that I'm ignoring. Like I've totally started listening to TV shows as though they're radio plays. Because I, you know, felt like I've exhausted the podcast universe. So what's the difference between me basically listening to Veronica Mars with like some light looking up at the screen during confusing moments versus this? I don't know. It, it it does seem like a form that's designed for a modern mode of consumption that, you know, is really different than the mode of consumption that is sort of assumed by cultural media, including possibly us. But Uh, I I don't know that I'm going to dig way into this world, but I found myself in this funny alternate universe and was like, all right, respect. You guys enjoy yourselves. (laughs) I'll see you later.
1: Yeah, I think I'm kind of with you, Julia. I mean, I personally might be a little bit horrified that it seems like the aesthetic, the visual aesthetic of these is sort of the less work put in the better. Like, look how unprofessional I am. Now listen to me talk for five hours. Mm -hmm. But that is just my own, you know, much edited podcasting self and someone who's used to thinking, well, we must present information in the most concise and economical possible way. I guess if you don't enjoy having it presented in that way, you might be just in the right place. But yeah, for me too, YouTube is a place where I go to look for specific things, to do research, to find little clips that I know I'm looking for, and not a place that I'm going to hang out as if I were watching TV. I do want to say like,
2: you know, a lot of these videos are not visually inventive or exciting, but there are certainly a lot of essayists who do put a lot of work into creating animations. And obviously there's a lot of research and a lot of content consumption. One of my favorite guys is Tim Rogers, who is also a he is known as a writer who writes, like, 20,000 words on video games um, and pulls in from, like, philosophy and ethics. And he's, he's kind of a nut, and I love him. But he also does very long video essays, and one of my favorites is on this obscure Japanese RPG Hello, and welcome back to Video Games.
1: I'm Tim Rogers. You are watching the Action Button Review of Tokimeki Memorial, a video game whose title we can translate as Heartbeat Memorial or
0: Heartthrob Memorial. Developed it's by a five the hour video and
2: I, I know he spent hundreds of hours working on this thing and he has many videos that he has talked about the amount of time he spends simply editing and exporting and so I have to give these people a lot of props because it's not so easy to do.
1: You know, we'll put links to this article and also to maybe some of these YouTube creators on our show page. And maybe people can go out and sample if they're not familiar with this phenomenon. And let us know what you think about long-form videos, pro or con. Once again, that would be at CultureFest at Slate.com.
2: This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Grainger, for the ones who get it done.
1: Now is the time in our show when we endorse something that we loved in culture this week. I don't have to go first this time because I'm hosting. So, Allegra, I'm going to start with you. What was something that you encountered that you want listeners to know about? So I've been listening
2: to this podcast from the comedian Connor Ratliff, whose work I've been a fan of for many years now. He has done bit parts on shows like Search Party, and he's known from the Upright Citizens Brigade scene back in the mid-2010s. And he currently has a podcast that has reached its culmination. It's called Dead Eyes. And it's about how in 2000, he, Connor, was fired from Band of Brothers by Tom Hanks himself. Tom Hanks told him that even though they had just given him the role, he was taking the role away from Connor because he had dead eyes, which was a very traumatizing experience for him. So traumatizing, in fact, that he made a whole podcast about it 21 years later. So it's a, it's a very funny, but also a moving listen because he doesn't just obsess over this one event in his life. Thankfully, he also interviews other comedians, actors, directors, people in Hollywood who have been fired from dream jobs or have done the firing or have had, you know, TV shows they've worked on be canceled at the last minute. So he's talked to, you know, Judd Apatow, Paul Feig, he talks to even Damon Lindelof and, uh, you know, Ryan Johnson. He, he talks to a pretty unique group of people, but the show just, I guess, technically ended. It, it reached the real culmination last week because he Connor finally got Tom Hanks to come on the show to talk about why he fired him. Uh, not that Tom Hanks really would remember, but landing that Tom Hanks interview is kind of the best way that a show like this could end. So I guess that's a little bit of a spoiler, but it was in the news last week for this reason. So uh, you, you should definitely check it out. It's Every episode's about 40 minutes. There's 30, 31 episodes. So it's uh, <laughs> kind of long, kind of long, but I've already made it to episode 24 and I just started listening last week. So you can do it. It's very funny, very worth it.
1: I feel like the theme to this week's Slate Culture Gabfest Fest is this object is very, very long. Should it be this long or not? <laughs>
2: yes, absolutely. This is one that I think maybe didn't need to be this long, but if it took him doing it for this many episodes to land that Tom Hanks interview, it was worth
1: it. All right, Julia, what have you got for us this week?
0: I'm going to continue my set of uh, California bragging vegetable-related endorsements. A couple weeks ago, I endorsed uh, the Vegetables Cookbook, Um, From Alice Waters. Today I am endorsing Six Seasons by Joshua McFadden. This is a cookbook that I have a bit of a love-hate relationship with. He's a a chef from Portland, Oregon, um, who has lots of delicious recipes that are designed for your farmer's market finds. Um, And each one of them requires like 47 steps. He seems to think you should cut all vegetables on the extreme diagonal and then soak them in ice water for 20 minutes before you do anything with them, all of which makes cooking kind of a pain in the butt. However, um, we've been feasting on haruke turnips this year which i had not really encountered before and i was like what do i do with these turnips and who came through for me josh mcfadden in six seasons had this like really delicious turnip and turnip green salad with poppy seeds and yogurt and all kinds of interesting stuff that i wouldn't have thought to put in a salad um so i just want to endorse Six Seasons by Joshua McFadden and Haruki Turnips, which I think are ending their season here in Cali. But those of you in colder climes where it's not yet spring can start looking out when your farmer's markets open up. Your poor, only part season farmer's markets, (laughs) sad Northeasterners.
1: Oh, you've so completely left behind and renounced your your Yankee identity. I love it.
0: No, come on. I need some sunshine and some turnips fresh out of the California soil. <laughs> <laughs>
1: All right. Well, to move on to my own endorsement, since we were talking about video essays and I was questioning, well, what's so video about them? What's the visual part and why are we looking at this particular thing on screen? And it seems like at least with the particular YouTubes we were talking about, the answer was often, well, what's up on screen is somewhat indifferent and that's part of the point. I wanted to endorse someone who makes video essays that are extremely visual and beautifully edited and really kind of do the most they can with that medium. I mean, I guess video essay could mean all kinds of things, and this is something quite different from what we were talking about in that segment. This really is more like really a short film, I would say. And I may have endorsed this person's website on the show before when we talked about the movie Columbus. Julia, I'm not sure if you were here when we talked about Columbus, the film from 2017 that's about essentially architecture and the love of architecture. It's so up your alley.
0: I know. I missed that. And I've been meaning to see it since. I'm going to put it back on the list.
1: Well, as it happens, the director of Columbus, whose name is Kogonada, he goes by just that single name. He's a Korean-American filmmaker who's pretty mysterious. He goes by this pseudonym. Nobody knows very much about his background. He likes to keep his personal life very private. But what he was doing before he made his first film, Columbus, in 2017, and he has just come out, I should say, with another a new movie called After Yang that I haven't seen yet. It's supposed to be great. But how he made his name was in making these video essays that he posted on his website. And they were so successful that he eventually started to be committed by various places and magazines to make video essays, but he started off just making them for himself, and they are just gorgeous. If you go to kogonada.com, K-O-G-O-N-A-D-A.com, you can see it's a beautifully designed site too, but you can see all these little thumbnails that you click on to watch just little mini movies, most of which are reflections about other movies or about filmmakers, um, but which also, you know, incorporate, they use editing beautifully. They use voiceover in a sort of dreamy fashion. It isn't, you know, him giving a lecture on the film. It's more clips from the film themselves and the way they're put together that, that put forward the ideas so to give you an example he started off with a video on Breaking Bad that he was so successful with that he started to get commissions you can watch that there there's an absolutely gorgeous one called Hands of Bresson that's just about the way the French filmmaker Robert Bresson uses hands in his filmmaking and so it's a it's a big thematic montage of of how he films his actors hands Uh, there's one about Richard Linklater's films called On Cinema and Time that talks about the way he uses you know aging in real time in for example the before films or boyhood And there's one called Mirrors of Bergman. that's just about Ingmar Bergman's use of mirrors in his film. So as you can imagine, this is a kind of a cinephile's delight. Um, These films are mostly in black and white, often about black and white movies. And they're all edited by him as his feature films are as well. And they're just a wonderful place to explore cinema, but also through the eyes of a very particular and I think really visionary filmmaker. So kogunada.com. Check out the video essays there. Well, that does it for this week's show. You can find links to some of the things we talked about on our webpage, slate.com slash culturefest. You can also always email us at culturefest at slate.com with feedback about the show or ideas for Slate Plus segments for the future. You can also write us an email at culturefest at slate.com where you can suggest ideas for a future Slate Plus segment or just give your feedback on this week's show. Our producer is Cameron Drews, our production assistant is Nadira Goff. For Julia Turner and Allegra Fank, I'm Dana Stevens. Thanks so much for listening and we'll talk to you soon.